So today's sermon is following the same vein. We'll be in Romans chapter 12. You can turn there, Romans 12, 1 and 2. And the title of the sermon is, What Do You Bring to Worship? What do you bring to worship? And of course, uh, early in the week, Tracy always says, what are you going to be preaching on? And I give her the text, and then she does what she just did, which is just wonderful, wonderful. So when it comes to worship, many people come to church for what they can get out of it, seeking something from God. And this is just the opposite of what God reveals worship to be. Uh, True worship is what we bring to God, what we bring to God. Too many people are trying to get everything that they can from God to experience spiritual victory or happiness or peace, maybe community, friendship, and so forth. But those virtues are not found in expecting more and more from God, but rather in giving all that we are and all that we have to him. That's what worship is. That sounds pretty radical, doesn't it? And it is radical. Romans 12, 1 and 2 very clearly says this, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, as we look at Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, it's a familiar text for for many people. And yet, Lord, um, there's so much to these verses that grab our hearts and challenge us. Lord, we pray that you would open these truths up to us today in a way that's fresh, in a way that we learn from your word today, no matter how long we've been believers, no matter how long we've been coming to church. Father, we pray that our hearts are ready to receive that which you have for us today, even as we bring our worship to you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, there are at least four aspects in these two verses to the presentation of ourselves to God as living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice, which God says is your reasonable service. It's worship. It's reasonable worship. That word for service is worship. They are the offering God your soul, offering God your soul, offering God your body, offering God your mind, and offering God your will. As I said, true worship is what we bring to God. Now, giving God your soul, let's just start there. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God... He starts out by saying, I urge you, and that's kind of misleading because we could think of Paul as pleading with us to do something. In the original, it is actually one word, but in English we have, I exhort you, or I urge you, or I admonish you. 
And the idea of exhortation comes clearly through it if you know the word that is used in the Greek. Exhortation isn't completely absent in Romans 1 through 11. We're in chapter 12, so we kind of jumped way ahead. Exhortation isn't completely absent, but predominantly, Romans 1 through 11 is exposition. There, there are some commands as well and exhortations, but it's predominantly Paul explaining things to us. Now, Paul is beginning a whole new section in the epistle, and chapters 12 all the way to the end, chapter 16, is dominated by exhortations. Some have said that Paul used a methodology in his teaching where he would deliver all sorts of doctrine on the front end of the letter and then the practical application of that doctrine on the latter part. That happens in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 is serious doctrinal teaching and then beginning in chapter 4, serious application. How do you apply these truths? That's exactly what's happening here. It means to come alongside the word that is used here uh, that we say, I urge, is actually parakaleo, parakaleo, and it means to come alongside. You might have heard of the paraclete used for the Holy Spirit, that's the same root word. It means to come alongside someone to help them or assist them, and the Holy Spirit is called another comforter, parakletos in uh, John fourteen sixteen, Parakaleo is also translated exhort. It's not just comfort. It's not just come alongside. It's actually exhortation. And we can see Paul, when he uses it, he extorted, uh, ex- not extorted, he exhorted. <laughs> it's really funny with the context. He exhorted young men to be sober-minded. He didn't extort them. And when he exhorted the Thessalonians to work quietly with their own hands and eat their own bread, he used the same word, parakletos, but he used it as exhortation. In Romans 12.1, it is a command. It's not a plea. And that, that English translation of urge uh, really doesn't carry the meaning here. It's kind of like Romans 6.13, which says, Neither present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead, and your members instruments of righteousness to God. That word present, it's so softened. It's like, here you go. It's a command. It's a command. And it's in the aorist active imperative. It's like, do this and do it now. Okay? And, and that's the context that I want you to understand here, this command. And he's talking to believers. He says, brethren. He's addressing the command of fellow believers to brothers, and he's urging them to dedicate themselves completely, nothing held back, to the Lord who redeemed them. Now, the only persons who could obey such a command were believers. This is a message for believers today. Those who were already a part of God's family. Because the true believer, the Christian, 
The very first element in presentation of themselves to God, the offering of their souls, is already a completed fact for believers. If you have believed in God, you have already given him your soul. Okay? If you haven't, you're not a believer. It's not a matter of following some dictates or or getting in line with a group of people and doing the same things that a group of people do. That is not salvation. That's religion. So, at the end of verse 1, the word for worship is used, latria. And the history of this Greek word is really fascinating. The, the end of verse 1 says, it is your spiritual service of worship. Latria is service there. And here's, here's the etymology or the, the, the history of a word. You know words kind of start out one way and then they go through transformations along the way. Well, listen to this. Originally, Latria was used to identify one who worked for hire or pay. Okay? And the laborer gave his strength to an employer for pay. It was the voluntary undertaking of work, but he got paid for it. Then the meaning streamlined a bit, and it came to mean to serve. You can see where that would come from, yielding yourself to someone else to to work. He served, and it identified that to which a man gave his whole life. Uh, The meanings kind of streamlining, but it's also broadening a little bit. Here he's giving his whole life. And then it is in that sense that the meaning came to represent one who dedicated their life to service. This is the history of this word. And finally, it came to be used as a service to the gods in a secular sense. Service to the gods. Now in the Bible, Latria The word never means human service. It is always used for service to and worship of God. And we're talking about worship of God right now. Now, a person who is not believed cannot offer his body, mind, or will to God because he has not yet taken the very first step by giving himself to God, by giving his soul to God. The world is filled with religions where people try to please God by doing stuff for him. I know because I did it for 19 years. And you try to do things for God. I never forget my mother, my dear mother, she's deceased. And um, she kind of marked the, the eras of her life by the surgeries that she had. I don't know if you know people like that, but... She had a lot of surgery. She had six boys, believe it. Um, And she marked her life by the surgery she had. And she would always use this kind of mantra. Oh, I have sacrificed for Jesus. I have so sacrificed for Jesus. (laughs) Um, Needless to say, the six boys were like, yeah, whatever. Until we were able to lead her to the Lord and she I know she was a believer because she began to say, Jesus sacrificed himself for me. And she stopped talking about all her sacrifices for Jesus and she started pointing to Jesus, what he did for me. He sacrificed for me. You see, she had given herself over completely to God. Until God has the soul, nothing else matters. 
Doesn't matter what you do. Your worship begins with giving your soul to God. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? He's got to own it all, people. And this giving of our soul is based on this therefore. Therefore, what's it therefore? It refers back to the first 11 chapters of of, uh, uh, Romans, which catalog what God, everything that God had done on behalf of sinful men to reconcile them to himself. The mercies of God that have been provided for and led to eternal salvation are expressed in the first 11 chapters of Romans. We read about his kindness. If you're taking notes, you can mark down Romans 2.4. We read about his patience in Romans 9.22. We read about his love all over, but Romans 5.5 5 and 8.35 and 8.39 talk about his love. But the clearest mercy that God demonstrated in those chapters is the mercy that is seen in your justification by faith. We were talking about this in Sunday school. Why did he do that? Why did he choose some and not everyone? Well, it's according to his good pleasure, which should rock us back on our heels if we've given our souls to God because we had nothing to do with it. He's the one that did it. We are declared righteous by him through faith alone. Now, the first element in genuine worship has been established then and embraced. It was the offering of yourself to God, the giving over of your very soul to God in salvation. I remember when I did that. I yielded it all. And I didn't want control anymore. (laughs) I knew where my control led. I was what old fundamentalist evangelists used to say, I came to the end of myself. And I realized there's nothing good that comes from this thing. I've made a mess of my life. And I gave my entire life over to God and said, please help. Take me. And he did. He did. And it's been a marvelous journey all these years. Now the second element here is giving God your body. Now, The soul does include the body. It's the whole entire person. But Paul says we are to present our bodies, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or your spiritual service of worship. To present literally means to place or to set beside. Therefore, it means to place at someone's disposal. And what Paul is talking about here is We are to place our body at God's disposal. It includes the idea of yielding or surrendering, and the implication is that every aspect of a believer's life is to be yielded to God. Uh, Years ago, there was a little pamphlet, and if we ever get a book table started, someday we're going to get one of those started. I'd love to get a whole stack of these pamphlets if they still have them. Uh, It was called My Heart, Christ's Home. If you're older, you might have come across that at some time. But it's a man that wrote this little tract that talked about Jesus coming in and examining each room in his heart like a home and kind of going into those doors that are kind of 
shut tight because there's stuff in that room that he didn't want Jesus to see. You get the idea. You see, the implication is that every aspect of a believer's life is to be yielded to God. Grammatically, this verb is an aorist tense, which calls for a once and for all presentation, denoting a deliberate action involving the thought of finality. Have you done that? Have you given your body to God once and for all? Take it. It's yours. Gosh, I I don't know if I should even say this, but I will, because you guys know me. Those of you don't, don't judge. When I was a young believer, I mean really young, first year, first months, I laid on a couch reading the Bible, and I read in Corinthians, know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I took a slug of beer, I took a drag on my cigarette, and I thought about that verse. I'm telling you the truth. The Spirit of God, I, I wasn't even going to a church at that time. That's how young in the Lord I was. I got saved reading a book. I didn't know other Christians really even existed. But God was working in this man's heart, and I thought, temple, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That means he lives in me. Oh, I put out the cigarette, and I put away the beer. I tell you, the Bible is powerful. The Spirit of God is powerful. And I gave myself over. Lock, stock, and barrel. I said, I'm not going to do that anymore. Now, I struggled hard with smoking, hard. And someday I'll tell you that story, but I was able to quit by God's grace. And I was convicted about it. You see, you do it once, but you continue to make good on that giving of your body. It was implied that believers have given their souls to God through faith in Jesus Christ by the mercies of God, as we already said, but it is explicitly stated that they are called to present their bodies to him as a living and holy sacrifice. This is, this is that you are to give over the members of your body to God. Because it is the members of your body with which you carry out the purpose of your life. This command is and should be viewed as a non-negotiable commitment for the believer. The verb present, as I said, is in the aorist tense. And that means that there's a once-for-all presentation denoting a deliberate action. And that changes everything. No longer trying to live in two worlds. I don't know. Maybe when you first believed, you tried to live in two worlds. Maybe you're trying to live in two worlds now. It doesn't work. You cannot straddle with God. If you are a blood-bought children of God, if you are his own creation, made new, Okay, by regeneration, he will not allow you to straddle two worlds. He will not. Now, this term is a technical term in the original language to present, and it refers all the way back to the Old Testament sacrificial system where priests would literally take uh, an animal and slaughter it and then present it on an altar. 
It includes the idea of surrender or yielding up. The priest would lay it on the altar and yield it up. He presented it. Paul previously used that term, as I said, in Romans 6.13. Turn to Romans chapter 6. It's just a couple chapters back. And look at this. It's just marvelous to behold. 6.12 says this. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey it in its lusts. Now, what I want you to to grab hold of these verses that I'm going to share in chapter 6 here is how Paul is using the body, the physical body. He says body, he says members, okay? He goes on in verse 13, do not go on presenting, there's that word again, the members of your body. To sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present, there's that word again, yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. All talking about the body, the physical body. In 1 Corinthians 6, 18 and 19, you don't have to turn there unless you want to, but it says, flee immorality... Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, there's a body again, but the immoral man sins against his own body. We were, we were joking around in, in joint heirs today, and this term man here, I said, man, that lets all the women off the hook. No, it's man, when you see it in the scripture, it's being used generally speaking of people. Flee immorality, every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Yes, I do know that. Mm -hmm. He brought that home very early in my Christian life. Whom you have from God and that you are not your own. There it is. You yield your body over as a living and a holy sacrifice to him. You're not your own. You don't have a say over what your body does. Because there are, how can I say it? There are faculties within this mortal body that want to sin. They want to satiate the lusts of the flesh. Romans 8.13 says, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if the spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, flesh here has an expanded meaning. It means that unredeemed element within our mortal bodies. Okay? But we carry out those unredeemed acts Through the members of our body. What are the members of our body? The members of our body are like our fingers, our hands, our tongue, our feet. It's the members of our body. Biblical language. In the simplest term possible, when Paul used the word body in Romans 12, he referred to our physical body, hands, eyes, mouth, feet, etc. And here, if I was a singer, I would sing, be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Be careful, little mouths, what you say. Be careful, little feet, where you go. Be careful, little heart, what you believe. Be careful, little mind, what you think. 
Most of the kids know that song here. We should sing it as adults because that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about sanctification, setting ourselves apart to God. Now, it needs to be a living and a holy sacrifice. Why did Paul say that? Well, Again, it's terminology from the Old Testament sacrificial system. Then a Jew would bring his offering, and it'd be an animal, to the priest who would take it, slay it, and place it on the altar on behalf of the person who brought it. Now, sacrifices of dead animals are no longer required by God. That's not what he's doing now in the New Testament. The perfect has come. All those sacrifices were just pictures of what was to come, and Jesus Christ is the perfect fulfillment of that as the Lamb of God, offering himself once and for all. And he's all-sufficient, his sacrifice. We don't have to have sacrifices year by year by year. Believers are to offer themselves as living sacrifices. Living sacrifices. We're not dead animals that are laying on a altar. We are living sacrifices. This is so important. Offering to God, surrendering to him all your hopes and plans and everything precious to you, all that is humanly important to us and that you find fulfilling and then you leave it with God on the altar and then you go on living your lives. But in complete surrender to him. This is the true definition of a living sacrifice. Aspirations, right? Expectations. All of those you leave on the altar and you leave it with God. And it's a holy sacrifice. It's not only living, it's holy. The sacrifice Paul exhorted believers to present to God was to be a holy one, hagias. It literally means to set apart something or someone for a very special purpose, like the instruments that were used in the temple. They were holy. They were set apart for a very specific usage. We need to set ourselves apart for a very specific usage that God can use us. Take my life and let it be, right? In the Old Testament, the animals that were to be presented for sacrifice were to be unblemished, unspotted. And the law was very specific about that and explained that only the best was to be presented to the Lord. And this is seen in the words of Malachi. I love this. It's towards, uh, towards the front end of the first chapter. A son honors his father and a servant his master, Malachi wrote. Then if I am a father, God says, where is my honor? Oh, man, can you hear him saying this in churches? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Oh, priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised you? And then God answers. When you present the blind for sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is that not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Wow. Worshippers today can easily fall into the same trap. 
As your pastor, I want to warn you. How do they do that? Well, when they only give God the time that is left over. When they only give God that which is left over of their money. When they only give God life that is left over. Left over from whatever else it is that worshipers find more important to spend their time with and their money on and their life on. Because true worship demands that you give him a living and holy sacrifice. That is what is acceptable to him. You know, I mean, I could just title this Lordship Salvation. I could talk about consecration. I mean, there's all sorts of ways you can go. But the thing is, is that to become a believer is a radical break with what we once were. And it shows. It shows through the life if you've had that radical break. If you do not have evidence of that, okay, Paul said, behold, you're a new creation in Christ. Old things are passed away. They're done with. And behold, all things have become new. So we have seen two elements of what you are to bring to God for worship. You bring your soul and you bring your body. Thirdly, you offer him your mind. This is a good one. This is practical Christianity. There are only two types of people in the world, those who have believed the gospel and those who have not. Two types of people in the world. Real simple, right? There are two types of Christian, those who are transformed and those who are being conformed. There's no in-between. Those being transformed are worshipers of God in spirit and truth, and those being conformed are not. Psalm 115, 18 declares a profound spiritual principle. What we are and what we do are both determined by our worship. There are only two ways of life for the believer, and they are described by Paul's use of two very specific terms in Romans 12, 2. The first term is conformed, and the second term is transformed. Think of conformed as a masquerade. Conforming means masquerade and transformed. Think of metamorphosis, metamorphosis, because that's where the word actually comes from. Look at verse 2 of chapter 12. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Being conformed refers to a change on the outside that does not come from within. It's bogus. It's a masquerade. It's also translated by the English word, don't be fashioned or shaped. J.B. Phillips uh, translates it this way, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. There is an incredible pressure called the world system that is every day trying to push us into its mold to make us think like it thinks, to make us act like it acts, to make us sing like it sings, to make us read like it wants us to read. And then we are being conformed to the world. On the other hand, transformation originates from the inside 
And it's an authentic expression of what the believer truly is in his inner person. Transfiguration of Jesus Christ is an excellent picture of this concept. The transfiguration of Jesus. You remember in Mark 9, it says, and he was transfigured before them. He was transfigured before them. It is the same word as Romans 12, 2, transformed. It could just as easily read, and he was transformed before them. And the disciples suddenly saw the glory of God shining through the veil of Jesus' flesh. It was no masquerade. It wasn't fake what was on the outside, but wasn't what on the inside. It was what he truly was on the inside, breaking through the veil of his flesh that he had taken on in the incarnation. Think of a house in the middle of the night on a hill that has lights on, and all the lights are pouring out. That's what happened. Jesus' glory came pouring, pouring out. And the disciples were amazed. Now, how do these terms reflect upon worship? Well, here, if you've got two columns, conformers and transformed, conformers are spectators of worship. They come and they observe. Transformed people participate in worship. Conformers demand quick results. Transformed people are patient, waiting for change. Conformed people anticipate a quick change, whereas transformed people look for lasting fruit. Conformers are enamored with famous. They're they're all about fame. (laughs) Transformed people learn from known as well as unknown. You know, we've fallen in hard times with celebrity pastors. And, and the really solid celebrity pastors never wanted that celebrity. They don't live for that celebrity. But the truth of the matter is, many Christians today follow people on the radio or on blogs or on the internet, and they cannot be your pastor. They don't know you. You're, you're, you're not intimate with them week in and week out. Don't adopt them as your pastor. Listen to them and learn from them, but recognize that they're not your pastor. Conformed people go from seminar to seminar to seminar. Transformed people trust God's work as they pray fast and evangelize and teach. They kind of stay seated, and they're not running from this seminar to the next seminar. Conformed people are always for bigger and better and more. Transformed people are unimpressed with flash and fame. They don't care about that. Conformed people desire recognition and fame. Transformed people just want to please God. And frankly, they're embarrassed by their lack of sanctification. Finally, conformed people, they don't take time to slow down and examine themselves Whereas transformed people look for that exposure of sin and error in their own lives because they want to be more like their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, all these things begin in the mind, and they're carried out through your bodies. It's it's with your mind that you make choices as to whether you will express your new nature in holiness 
or allow your fleshly humanness to act out in unholiness. Now, Paul was really specific about his admonition to Roman believers, considering the details of this command. It's in the present tense, okay? So it means it's something that needs to take place and continue. It continues on. You continue to let yourself be transformed. It's not a matter of impulse or an on-again, off-again type of attempt, but rather it is a continuous activity of transformation. It's also in the passive voice. Grammar matters. I don't often do this, but grammar does matter. It's in the passive voice, which Paul did not say, transform yourselves. He said, be ye transformed. Let yourself be transformed. According to the passive voice, he said, let yourselves be transformed. Transformation is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's progressive sanctification. And according to 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are all being changed from glory to glory into the likeness from one degree of glory to another, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is something taking place in your life. The only way you can block this from taking place is by sinning. And incidentally, when we sin, we're masquerading as someone who we are not. Thirdly, the verb is in the imperative mode, which means it's a command. It's not, if you feel like letting yourself be transformed, be transformed. It's, be ye transformed. They, they have all personal responsibility They must allow the Spirit to do this work within them. They are to cooperate with him. You see, justification is what we call monergistic. It's singular. God does it. Sanctification is synergistic. It's us working together, working out your own salvation in fear and trembling with God, right? Now, and and to this is how you offer the sacrifice of your minds to God in worship because transformation takes place in a very specific manner. By the renewing of your mind. I love this. This is how it takes place. Do you realize that each one of you have a script in your mind that you're living out? (laughs) Oh, man. The script that I developed over 19 years of life in an Italian home that we're not believers. 19 years of a script being established in my mind, and I got saved, and I went, oh, my gosh. I look at this, and I look at my script, and I I was almost in despair. Is there any hope for me? I'm so far removed from this. But see, that's what sanctification is, from glory to glory. And I got to tell you something. It doesn't take place in a minute. It does not take place in a minute. But that transformation comes from renewing your mind. You need to reprogram your mind according to the word of God. And this is why it's paramount for you to saturate yourself with God's word in personal daily devotions, listening to sermons on tapes and on the radio, participating in as many gatherings of believers as you possibly can. Why? To get the old script out and the new script in. And this is the new script. How do I parent my kids? It's not on mommy blogs, ladies. It's in the word of God. How do I I live as 
a husband with my wife? You find it in the word. How should I act at work? You find it in the word. How do I deal with all this crazy chaos that's going around here now? You find it in the word. And it begins to transform your mind. And you know, as you, as you saturate yourself with God's word and that mind is being transformed, you start living a little bit more steady. Young Christians are like this. As you gain some maturity in the Lord, you become more steady. And that's through the transforming of your mind, the renewing of your mind, you're transformed. A renewed mind spends as much time as possible on the things of God. It is evidenced by seeking the kingdom of God first and having a mindset on things above. Now, when I say that, some of you just switched off the button and said, oh my gosh, Lynetti has gone bonkers here. I mean, he expects us to get these long robes and just walk around saying, holy, holy, holy is he, holy, holy. That's not true. Dom got it. (laughs) We've been given all things freely to enjoy, people. But if you have given over your soul and you've given over your body and you're allowing your mind to be transformed and renewed, okay, through the word of God, freely enjoy the things that God has given to you. We're not monks separated and away so that we won't sin. We live in the real world and we will stumble. But never forget, it is finished. That is all paid for. And pick yourself up, dust yourself off, get back on the up escalator and keep walking forward, people. Finally, giving God your will. Now, this is simple. It, it says in the last part of chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 2, it says, the renewing of your mind, okay, so that, it's a purpose clause, so that you do all these things so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. If you do these other things, your will will begin to conform to his will. It comes down to the will. And the believer's will, as it is conformed, will prove what is acceptable and good. And this is the final, in the sense that it results in offering your soul, your body, your mind. This is the result of it. As your minds are transformed, it's so that you can do the will of God. Prior to your conversion, you did the will of yourself, which is basically the will of the devil. The whole world lies in the hands of the evil one. Who do you think? You got to serve somebody. We are not autonomous. There's always a power that is being served, and it's not us. Now, I've been talking a lot today about consecration. And in a word, consecration, who, whoever hears about that. We're going to have consecration meetings. You know, we don't talk about consecration anymore, and maybe that's why the church is so weak. Commitment. You know, we're having commitment Sunday. We don't do that anymore. Well, I read this past week of a, an illustration, and, you know, it, just listen to it. It, it. it spoke to my heart. I don't know if it will resonate with you. Quote, while assembling supplies for an African nation in Biafra, Biafra, I think it is, 
An American Red Cross volunteer came across a box with a strange note on it. The note read thus, We have recently been converted, and because of our conversion, we want to try to help. We won't be needing to use these again. Can you use them for anything? End of quote. Inside the box were several Ku Klux Klan sheets that had been used as disguises. Those sheets were cut into strips for bandages, and those bandages were later used to bind the wounds of Africans who desperately needed assistance. (laughs) The power of Christ moved those men from being focused on hate to being focused on helping somehow. And when this took place, a fundamental change happened. Those men who were used to help, uh, those men were used to help bring healing rather than hatred. And the power of Christ can move anyone from a position of hate to a position of healing. You know, there's not many of us that are going to be famous. There's not many of us that are going to be, you know, all that and more. Most of us are just plain ordinary folk. But the truth of the matter is, is if you are worshiping God in the way that I've defined worship this morning, by the giving of these things to God, these faculties that make you you, to God, he can use you in profound ways, even as an ordinary person. He can use you in your husband's life. He can use you in your wife's life. He can use you in your family, children. He can use you to help your parents, to affect the other kids at school. You see, this is the way to genuine worship. Brought to God from true heart change. God wants to move you from where you are right now into a deeper and more intimate worship experience. And he wants to take you from conversion to consecration. From conversion to consecration. And, and I just end today with this simple question. What do you bring to worship? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, none of us are perfect. All of us are at various degrees of maturation in the Christian life. But Lord, I know that this is bedrock truth. Romans 12, 1 and 2. And the giving over of our souls, our bodies, our minds and our will to you is bedrock. It's foundational. Without that, you don't, we're preventing you from doing your work that you so desire to do in our bodies, in our minds, in our souls and our wills. We want to reflect you, and we we do a poor job of that so often, Lord. Please forgive us. Oh, yeah, thank you. You have forgiven us. That's what Jesus died for. All of our failures, all of our hiccups, all of our wrong turns, and all of our mess-ups, they're all under the blood. There is therefore now no condemnation to us. Lord, forgive us when we wallow in condemnation that is self-imposed because your word, which is true, tells us there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus and are called according to his purposes. And our purpose is to glorify you 
and enjoy you forever. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.